I remember uh, Susan telling me about a conversation she had with a friend who said that she had quit going to church. I wouldn't ask why. She said it was because all that going to church ever did for her was make her feel guilty. Week after week, she felt downcast and depressed, so she gave it up. Now, I can sympathize with that woman. I mean, why would you ever want to do that to yourself? But what are we to make of that kind of experience? Well, for one thing, that woman may have felt guilty because she was guilty. Now, I don't know, but if that's the case, the church is not to blame. Uh, You see, I'm sure that uh, the purpose of the church and uh, my purpose as a preacher is not to make people simply feel good about themselves. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the truth. And if you feel guilty and the bright light of the truth, then so be it. But I suspect if guilt is all Susan's friend ever felt, then her church may not have been proclaiming the whole truth. For sadly, there's a half-truth going around, a very widespread and widely believed half-truth. It goes around even in churches. It's the belief that religion in general, and Christianity in particular, is in its essence a system of morality, a code of ethics. It tells you how you ought to live. Religion is a matter of keeping the Ten Commandments or living by the Sermon on the Mount. It's about about doing the best you can, living a good life, obeying the law. And for most people, this is what the Bible is all about. The Bible presents a moral system. And that's why you find so many young parents who are totally indifferent to spiritual matters themselves, but who send their kids to Sunday school. They want their kids to have values. They want them to have some sort of moral framework, moral standards. And what else is religion good for if not to instill ethical behavior? And the now illegal practice of posting the Ten Commandments on the walls of public school classrooms seems to have had this very assumption. If you want to teach morality, then teach religion, for religion is essentially a moral code. And now here I am preaching on those Ten Commandments the very essence of religion in the minds of many, and some of you may already be thinking about how guilty you're going to feel before I finish. And perhaps that's how you ought to feel, but that's not my motivation here this morning. For even as I preach on the Ten Commandments, the main thing that I want to press upon you this morning is that the Bible is not about morality. Let me say that again. The Bible is not about morality. Does that surprise you? In fact, the God of the Bible is opposed to moral systems, if by that you mean some collection of autonomous rules and regulations for living. For you see, moral systems are man-made, even when they incorporate biblical truth. Moral systems lead to legalism, the listing of do's and don'ts. And legalism states that if I can just do the do's and not do the don'ts, then I will be right with God. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had a moral system. This sort of system is a form of self-justification based on self-righteousness. That's not what the Bible is about. And so reacting against the falsity of the Christian message as a system of morals based on law, some people crawl out of one ditch, they cross the road, and they crawl into a ditch on the other side. 
And so they want to eliminate any notion of obedience to law altogether. No, they say Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. God accepts you just as you are. And if you accept Christ as your Savior, then how you live doesn't matter. Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us that we are saved by God's grace and not by the works of the law? In the Old Testament, they say God gave us the law, but it was just a little too hard for people to obey. So in the New Testament, God gave us an easier way to get to heaven just through faith in Jesus. We don't need the law anymore. Jesus put an end to the law. The law of the Old Testament has been put aside, and Jesus' law of love has taken its place. Yes, all you need is love. And from the ditch of legalism, we've moved to the opposite ditch of license, the rejection of any place for law in the Christian life. It's a view also known as antinomianism. To quote John Stott, legalists fear the law and are in bondage to it. Antinomians hate the law and repudiate it. The second viewpoint, which is also very common in our day, is sometimes called cheap grace. For it's a form of Christianity that demands nothing. It never mentions Jesus' call to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. No, it's a gospel of self-fulfillment. It's about Jesus, how he can come alongside you and, and fulfill your agenda for life, make you successful in your business, in your marriage, in your family. And the gospel releases us from all the shoulds and the oughts that deaden our spirit. No longer should we talk about sin or even duty, for our only duty is to ourselves to pursue that which will fulfill our own needs and desires. The Ten Commandments, if they're mentioned at all, become merely ten suggestions that we can take or leave as we like. And the result of this emphasis in this country and in other places around the world, I must say, has been a very flabby form of Christianity. It leaves Christians as salt without flavor, good for nothing, and the church with no backbone to stand against the tide of culture becoming indistinguishable from the world around it. Legalism and license. Christianity as a system of morality. Both of those reacting against the same idea. Christianity perhaps released from morality altogether. Ditches on either side of the road. And through the centuries, the church has been continually tempted to fall into one side or the other. But what is the road? The right road. The royal road that leads to true freedom that is set, uh, set before us by the gospel. How are we as Christians to view the law of God and particularly the Ten Commandments? Well, I'm sure we won't understand the law properly without first rightly understanding the gospel, the good news that comes to us in Jesus Christ. You see, the the Christian gospel invites us, or perhaps better calls us, into a transformative relationship, a relationship with a holy God as our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat that. The gospel calls us into a transformative, transforming relationship with a holy God as our heavenly Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I say again, the Bible is not about morality. The Bible is about a relationship, a transforming relationship. A relationship with a holy God who rescues us from our sin and who calls us to Himself to be His sons and daughters and to live as His children in the world. 
And see, this is what the Bible is about. This is what the Ten Commandments ultimately are about. Not an autonomous catalog of moral rules that can stand on their own apart from the God who gives them. They belong in the context of God's covenant relationship with His people. They must be seen in the light of God's gracious purpose. We must understand the effect that they ought to have, and we must appreciate the role of the mediator by which they come to us, the mediation both of Moses and of Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why in our treatment of the Ten Commandments this morning, I'm not going to go down the list giving you a compendium of do's and don'ts as prescribed by each commandment. I'm sorry if I disappoint you in not doing that. I'm afraid that to some extent that could simply encourage a legalistic mindset illustrated in the story about W.C. Fields. Perhaps you've heard of it. W.C. Fields, the actor who was widely known for his dissolute and depraved lifestyle, was once found reading the Bible with great earnestness, quite to the surprise of his friends. And when asked why he was reading the Bible, he replied, loopholes, loopholes, just looking for loopholes. And rather than a list of do's and don'ts, I want us to see the Ten Commandments as part of the gracious purpose of God to create a people for Himself who live in a loving relationship with Him and with each other. Again, let's not mistake Christianity for morality. And let's not simply go away from here this morning feeling guilty or looking for loopholes. This morning, let's receive the whole truth as our gracious God has revealed it to us. So we go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. So first of all, I want you to notice the context of the law. The law was given as a part of God's covenant with Israel. Now, as we said a couple of weeks ago, a covenant is an agreement between two parties establishing the terms of their relationship. And the covenant God made with Israel was one in which he, as the superior party, set forth the stipulations that Israel, the inferior party, must accept. Now, this was not unlike what rulers of vast empires in the ancient Near East would do with the small vassal kingdoms that came under their control. But this divine covenant was unlike those treaties in that this covenant was completely a consequence of God's grace. The Lord took the initiative in calling this nation to be His own people. He carried them on eagles' wings. He brought them to Himself to be His treasured possession. He gave them birth, and then He gave them His law. And you could say it was like the implicit covenant that parents have with their own children. You see, the parents bring the relationship into being by birth, and then they set forth the terms of their relationship, stated simply, we're in charge here. It's not a legal arrangement at all. No, it's a relationship of love. But it has a covenantal shape. It's a relationship based on grace, a relationship with the children, uh, which, which the children can never earn, but they can only receive in loving response. There is a Jewish tradition that God offered His law to all the nations, but only Israel would accept it. 
But that's not what the Bible says at all. No, it was not because of your righteousness or your greatness that I chose you, the Lord tells them. In fact, you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. I chose you because of my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I chose you freely and graciously to be my people, to shower my blessing upon you and through you to all nations, to the whole world. Now, as I've mentioned before, this is how the Ten Commandments begin in verse 6. Not with you shall have no other gods before me, but with I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Notice the order here, the fact of God's gracious saving activity, His redeeming love, His, His rescue out of slavery. That takes precedence over the demand of God upon His people. The indicative precedes the imperative. I am your God, you are my people. Now live in a way appropriate to that relationship. This is the nature of the covenant that God made with His people. This is the context in which the law is given. And outside this context, the Ten Commandments lose their intended meaning. I have given you birth, the Lord says. You are my beloved children. Now this is how you are to live in faithful response to my love. This is how you are to reflect who I am in the world that I have made. And so the Ten Commandments are not a list of timeless ethical truths. They are a personal charge given to a particular people. Verse 4, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountainside. This was a personal encounter. And nine times in these 16 verses of the Ten Commandments, we see the words, the Lord your God. He wasn't addressing the Canaanites or the Amorites. These were God's words to His people. And notice that the fourth commandment is grounded in Israel's own experience of God's grace. Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Or again, in the fifth commandment, the reward is directly tied to God's particular gift to Israel. Verse 16, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You see, this isn't an autonomous moral system. This is the appropriate response to a holy and gracious God who has acted to redeem His people in His love and to make this people His people. The Ten Commandments must be seen in the context of this covenant, in the context of a relationship between God and His beloved people. You see, these laws were given to a particular people, but our text makes it clear that those people weren't limited to those who heard the voice of God from the fire on Mount Horeb, which is, again, another term for Mount Sinai. Almost that entire generation had died by the time Moses spoke these words, and yet he can still say in verses 3 and 4, it was not with, and here we must understand and implied only, it was not only with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. He's saying this covenant relationship lives. It was made with the nation as a whole. Moses can rightly identify those whom he was addressing near the Jordan River with those who stood on the mountain 40 years before. The covenant belongs to them too. 
and as we'll see shortly in a new form, it belongs to us as well. So again, this is the context of the law, the covenant the Lord made with His people. That's the first thing, and perhaps the most important thing that we must understand about the law from our text this morning. But notice, secondly, the purpose of the law. This comes out in the final words of the chapter, and I think this is significant. Verse 32, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So how are the Israelites to view this law of God? Not as a burden, but as a gift. You see, its purpose was their prosperity. God's law was given them to to lead them into God's blessing the, the experience of life itself lived to the full. Now, how many people think of God the way that the skeptic H.L. Uh, Mencken thought of Puritans? A Puritan, he said, is someone who is afraid that somebody somewhere is happy. That's ridiculous, both about the Puritans and about God. No, the law is given so that things might go well with you. That's said both in verse 16 and in verse 29. So the purpose of the law is not to make you feel guilty. It's to lead you to life. Again, those words from the psalmist in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The ordinances of the Lord are sure Altogether righteous, they're more precious than gold. They're sweeter than honey. By them as your servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward. And the older and more experienced I get in life, the more I'm convinced of this, you ignore the law of God, the ways of God at your own peril. How much trouble people could avoid If they simply live as God prescribes for us, life becomes much easier for you. You see, our God is no tyrannical dictator giving random and arbitrary orders to satisfy His own whims. No, the Lord made us. He knows how we're meant to live. And so do we ignore God's law and the sanctity of the sexual relationship within marriage? Then we suffer. Experiencing things like teenage pregnancy and abortion and broken marriages, and so it goes. Do we ignore God's law against the disordered love of covetousness? Then we suffer, becoming slaves of our passions, deceived into thinking that our happiness will come in the possession of more and more things. Do we ignore God's law on the necessity of honesty? Then we suffer with lives filled with mistrust, hostility, hatred, broken relationships, instead of the intimacy of love for which we're created. We could go on. I used to think I had to be apologetic about God's righteous demands and His standards. No more. The results speak for themselves. The purpose of God's law is our prosperity, that things may go well for us in the land God has given us, that we may live in fellowship and love with God, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Heavenly Father, 
that we may live in, in fruitful and joyful relationships with one another. You see, the law of God is in the service of relationship. What kind of relationship could we have with God or with one another without the truths that are set forth in the Ten Commandments? So when you think of the Ten Commandments, think about God's desire for your life. Do you think that uh, He's afraid that somewhere or sometime you might be happy? Is that why He puts these demands upon you? No. God's plans and purposes for you may not always be what you had in mind. They may not always be pleasant. But if you're His child, you can be sure that they're ultimately for your good Obey God and live life to the full. You see, that's the message of this covenant. And isn't that what Jesus said? I, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But notice the effect that the giving of the law had on the people of Israel. Look at verse 23. Moses said to them, when you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty. We've heard His voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a man can live even if God speaks to him. But but now why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? You see, when these people encountered the awesome majesty of God, they were afraid. And in a sense, this is a corrective to what I've just said. God's law is for our good, but the God who gives that law, He is not our servant. He's not to be trifled with. He's a great and awesome God. He is glorious and He is majestic and He is holy. And if He were to manifest Himself in His glory right here and now in this room, we would all fall down in dread. As we said last week, you can't separate the law from the lawgiver. These are not autonomous rules. They are commands of the living God who demands from us a response of awesome respect and reverence, which the Bible often calls fear. Now the Lord takes note of the Israelites' reaction to Him. I have heard what this people said to you, the Lord said to Moses. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. And keep all my commands always. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or as one writer put it, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. See, true religion is not simply a matter of keeping the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, as so many believe. It's coming to know the God who speaks to us in this way, the God who has the power and the authority to command us in this way, the God whose holiness and majesty ought to cause us to bow in reverent fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Jesus said. I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
As we said last week, we ought to have a healthy fear, a reverence for our God. As we read in the New Testament book of Hebrews, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Israelites had seen the glory and majesty of God. They had heard the voice from the fire. No wonder the leaders came to Moses and said in verse 27, Go near and listen to all the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord God tells you. We will listen and obey. They wanted someone to shield them from the full fury and force of the voice of God. And so Moses stands in the gap. Look at verse 5. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord. You see, Moses became the mediator of the law, the mediator of the covenant of God with his people. And the Lord here is gracious in allowing this kind of arrangement, recognizing the weakness of the people. And we'll see God's grace at work in this way even more clearly in chapter 9. But here we see Moses, the prophet of God, the one whom the Lord knew face to face, acting as God's instrument to bring his word to his people. But even Moses was not without fault. As we read last week, he himself had angered the Lord. Moses would not be allowed into the promised land. Moses had failed to live as he ought. And we know that Israel failed too. That's why the Lord said, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always. But their hearts were not so inclined. They didn't keep the law. And the law was broken by all God's people in every generation. That's the story of the whole Old Testament, isn't it? A story of the failure of Israel to live in faithfulness to their God. And so this law, embedded in this covenant, was never fully obeyed. It remained unfulfilled in human experience. You see, this law pointed to a relationship with God, a relationship of complete love and obedience, a relationship that was never realized. And in that sense, you see, this law must be seen as a prophetic ideal. And this prophetic nature of the law pointing forward, was declared by Jesus himself. Jesus said that the law and the prophets prophesied until John the Baptist. The law looked forward to something that was still to come. And what the law pointed to remained unfulfilled until one who is greater than Moses appeared on the scene. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. You see, the Lord made a covenant with Israel, but the Lord Himself had to fulfill Israel's side of the agreement, so He sent His Son to be the very embodiment of Israel. Jesus' life and ministry was a fulfillment of all that the Lord's law spoke about, all that the law required of God's people. Jesus lived out the relationship of love that the law pointed to, living in full faith, and obedience to God his Father. And if it was through Moses that the law came to Israel, it is through Christ that this law now comes to us. He is our mediator. And Jesus was not, he was not just a, a law giver like Moses. No, he was also a law keeper. As he himself was the incarnation of the law. He was all that the law pointed to, realized in a human life.
Jesus was the only man ever completely faithful to the God of the covenant. And that's why in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says that Christ is the telos of the law, a word that means goal, finishing line, fulfillment, culmination. So think about it this way. Just consider these Ten Commandments as they come to us through Jesus Christ. In the first commandment, the law says, you shall have no other gods before me. And in the Gospels, we read that the devil in the wilderness showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, and he said, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. But Jesus says no to that temptation. Away from me, Satan. He said, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus did just that, being obedient, even to death on a cross. In the second commandment, the Lord says you shall not make an idol in the image of any created thing. But you see, Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God. John tells us that no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, has made him known. Show us the Father, the disciples ask. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. He's the image of the invisible God. The law says you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You see, when we use God's name, we invoke the person of God. We call upon Him to act. And in misusing God's name, we attempt to manipulate God for purely personal ends. But Jesus refused to manipulate God for His own advantage. Though He was in danger when His enemies came to arrest Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus refused to call upon the Father to send Him twelve legions of angels for His protection. Though He faced death, He prayed, Not my will, but Thine be done. He honored the name of the Lord His God. The law instructs Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy. The law of the Sabbath was a, was a sign of the covenant between the Lord and His people Israel. But Jesus, as the Son of Man, proclaimed Himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He inaugurated a new Sabbath rest. He brought the salvation toward which the law of the Sabbath pointed. The law says, honor your father and mother. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus not only honored His heavenly Father, but even on the cross, He was careful to see see to the well-being of His earthly mother. He entrusted her care to His beloved disciple. The law says, do not murder. Jesus taught that even anger in your heart was like murder, and Jesus even forgave those who nailed him to the cross. The law says, do not commit adultery. Jesus taught that even lust in your heart was like adultery, and this law reflects the fact that God has created us to live in faithful covenant relationships, which are themselves reflections of his covenant relationship with us, and Jesus is the ultimately faithful covenant partner. The law says do not steal. Jesus not only doesn't steal from others, He gives to others. He gives His very life. And Jesus says give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The law says do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Jesus said let your yes be yes and your no be no. And his favorite expression was, truly, truly, I say to you, I speak to you the truth. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away, he declared. Jesus is the truth, and he can be trusted implicitly. And as for coveting, the last commandment, 
Coveting comes from an inner dissatisfaction, a discontentment with our circumstances, and ultimately a failure to trust in the gracious providence of God in our lives. And when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was tempted to turn stones into bread. He refused to covet what his Father had not given him. And Jesus said, why do you worry about what you will eat or drink or about what you will wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law. The epistle to the Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Faithful as a son. You see, that's what the law is all about. What it means to live faithfully as a son. And that's what Jesus did to fulfill the law. And so the Ten Commandments are meant to be understood in that context. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be understood in that context. The context of the covenant. The context of God's love for His people, whom He loves like a father. You see, we cannot understand the law of God without looking to Jesus. He embodies its meaning. He lives out the relationship to which it points. And on the cross, He died as the righteous sacrifice for our failure to live as God's covenant people. The gospel message declares that when we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, we are joined to Him He becomes our representative. It's as if the two become one as in a marriage itself. What is true of Him becomes true of us. We share in His righteousness. We enter into this covenant relationship with the Father. We are adopted into God's family and through Him and by the Spirit we share in His power to live in a new way as a faithful son, a faithful daughter of our Father in heaven. And so this law, as it comes to us through our mediator, Jesus Christ, shows us what love looks like and how we can become more like Christ and enjoy a relationship with the living God. There's a story in Jewish tradition, another one. This one focuses on the covenant and the law. To what may, we com- uh, may this be compared, asked the rabbi? To the following. A king who entered a province said to the people, May I be your king? But the people said to him, have you done anything good for us that you should rule over us? What did he do then? He built a city wall for them. He he brought in a water supply for them. He fought their battles. And when he said to them, may I be your king? They said to him, yes, yes. Likewise, God. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt, divided the sea for them, sent down the manna for him, brought the quails for them. He fought for them the battle with Amalek. Then he said to them, I am to be your king. And they said to him, yes, yes. You see, the Lord made his covenant with Israel on Mount Horeb, and he has now made his covenant with us on Mount Calvary. And instead of a rescue from the slavery of Egypt, he's rescued us from the slavery of sin and death. Instead of an earthly land, He has promised us us an eternal kingdom. He's given us all the spiritual riches in Christ. He's fought our battles. And now He says, I am to be your king. And your response? Is it yes? Yes. 
Will you follow him? Will you allow him to rule over you? Will you appreciate his law as his gift to you? Will you respond as a son or daughter in faith to your loving father? Don't reduce your religion to a moral system. Understand the gracious work of God. Enter into that relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Well, are you feeling, uh, are you feeling burdened by guilt this morning? Has the reading of the Ten Commandments exposed the shallowness of your morality? I heard you, don't, don't leave here feeling guilty. We worship a God waiting to take that burden, eager to give you freedom, forgiveness, and bring you into a living relationship with Himself. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The truth that convicts us of our moral failure is also a truth that declares a divine grace, God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus has come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Oh Lord, we thank you for your revelation to us, your redeeming grace that comes to us in Christ. And we thank you for the way you have revealed yourself through history as we read about it in the Old Testament and we see the giving of the law which was essential to reveal who you are and the nature of the relationship that, that you desire to have for us, a relationship that necessarily includes righteousness. Without this kind of righteousness, there can be no relationship. But Lord, we confess we've failed. We do not live up to the Ten Commandments. But we thank You in Your grace You've sent Your own Son to fulfill all that it points to. And now it is in Him that we can have forgiveness, that we can enter into this covenant. And by His work, we are redeemed. We're given forgiveness and mercy. And then by the Spirit, you empower us to live in a new way so that our lives may be transformed through this relationship. May it be so, Lord. May we grow in our knowledge of you as we grow in your holiness through Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.